What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Happy to be here with you today and really want to start off with thank you. Honestly, thank you guys for voting for us for the podcast awards. We are a finalist. If you want to continue to vote in hopes that we win, you can go to podcastawards.com under the education section and just select Smart People Podcast and submit. But I'm really not saying this so that you go vote. We wanted to say thanks for getting us up there in the first place. And thank you to those who have left kind reviews on iTunes so that others can find us. So again, just wanted to say thank you. And to show our appreciation, we're going to bring you another great episode here. Today's fun. We're talking about trash. Our unfortunate, dirty love affair with trash. Have you ever thought about how much trash you create? Honestly, have you ever stopped to consider how many trash bags you go through in a year or a decade or a lifetime? How many garbage can trips to the curb? How much food you throw out? Probably not. Most of us haven't. But the truth is the average American produces 102 tons of garbage across a lifetime. It's crazy. And where does all of that go? As you'll hear in our episode this week, we think it's magic because we don't see where it goes. But in fact, it gets stored in mountains of trash and it compiles in ocean islands. We sell our trash or export it to other countries. But this isn't some hippy-dippy, let's save the world episode. Well, at least not entirely. We want to understand it. So we're talking to Pulitzer Prize winning author and journalist Edward Humes. Edward recently wrote a book called Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, and it's fantastic. He actually speaks on it around the country, mostly at universities who are incorporating this message into their curriculum. 
Hope you find this episode enlightening, eye-opening, all the things we hope out of Smart People Podcast. If you do, and you haven't left us a review yet, we'd really appreciate it. Connect with us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. And best of all, tell a friend. If every one of you got one person to listen, we would have double the listeners. That's math knowledge. So again, thanks so much. Here it is, our interview with Edward Humes. All right, Ed. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I cannot wait to get dirty and talk trash with you today and talk about your new book, which is fantastic, Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I want to talk about the start of this all. Really, the age of consumerism, the American dream, let's buy stuff, and that is where it ends. We don't think about what happens after that. So I was hoping you could tell us about that beginnings. Well, it really goes back to the end of World War II and the uh, the birth of the, the modern consumer society. We had all this um, uh, economic activity that was used to create a war machine. Suddenly we had massive manufacturing capacity. Uh, we had people coming home from service, needing jobs, and it was the perfect time to uh, start building things and selling them using those uh, th that industrial capacity that we had ramped up for the war. And uh, modern marketing was born at the same time, this idea that we can shop our way to prosperity that we've heard uh, repeated to us ever since. Uh, even in the wake of 9-11, uh, we had a president telling us, go out and shop because it'll help the economy. We've been thinking that way ever since because that was the economic model that seemed to make sense at the time. And um, the thinking was, going back to the father of corporate branding, this fellow named Jay Gordon Lippincott, who basically said we had to act as if our economy was based on an unlimited abundance, that things would never run out, that we could just grow infinitely, sell infinitely, uh, and, and and achieve an endless prosperity that way. And it's, it's a wonderful idea if, in fact, we had infinite supplies of everything. But as we're finding out now, it doesn't really work that way in the, in the real world. Uh, but it does create a, a nearly infinite supply of waste embedded in uh, everything that we do and buy and sell and consume. It really wasn't taken into a account back uh, in those early days of the consumer economy. And we are now uh, being compelled to, to start paying attention to that because the uh, waste is an increasing embedded problem in pretty much every difficult challenge we now face from climate to energy to our economy. Uh, it's all rooted in, in, in the waste that it's embedded in our consumer lifestyle. I mean, how has it become so disguised from us? It's one of those things. It's, as you mentioned, it plays such a role in our lives, yet even most Americans, I would say, never think about it. Because it's magic. We, it is magic. <laughs> think about the term that we use for how we deal with waste. Every community has a department, and it's usually named waste management. I think Just think about that term a little bit. You know, you almost don't even hear it or pay attention. It sounds so bureaucratic, but it's not waste elimination or waste reduction. It's waste management, and that's what we do. We roll it to the curb every week or so, depending on where you live, and it magically disappears, and we never have to think about it again. And it doesn't magically disappear. We take that 
trash. And the American model is even after decades of trying to ramp up recycling and responsible consumption, the vast majority of it goes to landfills. And we basically build mountains out of trash, out of garbage, out of waste. Uh, and uh, far from disappearing, it becomes not only a, a a very unproductive disposable disposal of valuable material, but it's also a serious environmental problem. It's a major source of greenhouse gases. Landfills are one of the chief sources of methane in the atmosphere, right after uh, the petroleum industry. So we have uh, we have really built a system that is the definition of unsustainable in how we deal with waste. But it seems like magic. I want to learn how you got started on this journey. And I'll tell you what brought me to your book is I have a baby on the way. It was the first one. And I was talking to friends about how many diapers I'm going to go through. <laughs> really? And and I mean, oh, yeah. like I said, you know, I like to recycle and I look out for, I have a garden, all that good stuff. And I went, I can't do this. I mean, I cannot put that much poopy covered whatever in into the world. And so I looked at cloth diapers and was quickly warned by everything ever that that's the worst way to go. And so that's when I started realizing, man, the diapers are just the beginning. Did you ever come across that thought process, by the way, like looking at diapers specifically? Oh, yeah. Well, sadly, of all the wasteful products we have to deal with, there's really only crappy solutions for diapers, <laughs> I gotta tell you. Yeah. I think uh, because why, the cloth diapers use a tremendous amount of water and, and have all sorts of environmental issues behind uh, that choice. Um, there are some compostable products out there, but they don't seem to have caught on. And, and it's one of those things that uh, we just have a little trouble figuring out a good solution to. Uh, fortunately, it's not that huge a part of our waste stream, but mm. I mean, it's significant. We're talking about a couple of percentage points inside every landfill, but um, there's there's many other uh, more wasteful products that are far easier to deal with that we're also not choosing well on. But yeah, what got me started on looking at trash and waste was really a, a, an earlier book I did on sustainability in, in business. And when businesses look at sustainability, they're looking for a return on their investment. They want it to make economic sense to make a choice that's environmentally good. And for a long time, they, it was hard for, for any business to really look at environmentalism as a potential positive. But thinking has changed, and there actually is a great return on investment for being sustainable, particularly if you focus on reducing waste. Because waste I mean, it's a reason we call it waste. You're throwing stuff away that has value. You're wasting it. And and whether it's the food you leave on your plate or unnecessary packaging in a giant retailer like Walmart, if you start shaving away at the waste, guess what? You, you save money. You make money off that process. And and I, in learning about how a company like Walmart um, – which is nobody's idea of of uh, you know a charitable operation. Why they made reducing waste the top priority throughout their massive company, and what that did to both the business and to the environment. I realized this was the next subject I wanted to tackle: the the waste embedded in how we live and what really looking at it thoughtfully and productively could do. That's actually or a community or a country. That's fantastic to to think about. Giving the example of Walmart, I'm interested, 
what did they do? Because I don't see what waste they would be producing that they could perhaps be using or reinvesting or how do they save money on waste? Well, this is this is something they couldn't see on their own. And that's why I made, that, that was the book before Garbology. It was called Force of Nature. And it was about the partnership between a river guide, this outdoorsman who became a business consultant. I mean, this is a guy who lived half his life out of doors, leading expeditions down wild rivers. Uh, and he had he was one of the first sustainability consultants. And his first client was Walmart, which was just at the time looking for good PR to, 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 to counter its negative image. And they thought, well, maybe we could do something with the environment. We'll hire this guy. Well, he showed them. He said, let, let, let's do an experiment. And he looked at one product, a toy truck, and said, why is the box on this toy truck so big? What would happen if we took a couple of inches off this box in its width and its depth? We'd hold the truck easily still. Let's see what happens. Well, you know what happens when a company the size of Walmart that sells a couple million of these toy trucks every year, you know what happens? They save two million bucks on that one product. Wow. It, it required uh, hundreds of fewer container loads to move the same amount of product because you could fit more inside. <laughs> it cost them less to ship in their trucks across the country because they didn't need as much space on the truck. And on and on, the ripple effects of one product turned that company into a true believer. First, they didn't believe that someone could see that they were this, this very efficient operation that prided itself on efficiency was so wasteful, but that the savings could be so tangible and so big. Uh, and they they have reduced their waste 80% that they send to landfills. Wow. They recycle stuff they used to throw away. I mean, they're not perfect. They, they still have room to improve, but it, there's no community uh, in America that has reduced its waste as much as Walmart has reduced its waste. It's it's remarkable. And it's all about the money. It makes them wealthier. So they do it. And it's one of those cases where being good for the planet and good for business align perfectly because waste is a cost. Have you found other great examples of how that, you know, how that's worked and how that's going to be the way we deal with a lot of this waste in the future? Yeah, well, it turns out it scales pretty well. I, I wrote about the, in Garbology this this family, um, the Johnsons, that lived up in Northern California, and they had a job change and had to downsize their house. And they went from big suburban, almost three thousand square feet, down to I think it was fourteen hundred square, basically half the space. And they had to throw away or get rid of or sell a lot of stuff, and they thought that's going to be impossible. But then they started going through the things and the chair that nobody ever actually liked to sit on and the extra set of china they never used. And they sort of went through their house and, and realized that they had filled the space, but with a lot of stuff they didn't love or need. <laughs> and they found paring things down not as hard as they thought it would be. And that led to a kind of rethinking of how they spent their money and what they spent it on and what they needed and wanted and um this led by the um, family of four, led by the mom, Bea Johnson, um, kind of rethought how they wanted to live and how they wanted to or not waste stuff. Because how wasteful is it to buy things that you don't really want or need? Um, and then you end up getting rid of them without a, without a care. So the, she kind of systematically put the family on a zero waste course and started recycling everything, buying things that could only be reused or recycled, buying used stuff. She started shopping for clothes at uh, you know thrift shops and, and 
Goodwill stores and places like that and found new things or slightly used things that she could give a new life to. Um, and this is something a lot of people have discovered in pieces. I mean, one of the biggest waste uh, reducers in the world is Craigslist. You know, instead of throwing things away, and uh, your stuff finds a new life and new use. And that's, that is the ultimate in sustainability. But she took it to the next level. She Bea brings containers to the supermarket to put uh, bulk goods in or her deli's meat and doesn't take the plastic bags or the, the paper wraps or anything. And they work so hard at this that at the end of the year, the stuff they couldn't compost or recycle that they had to throw away fit in a mason jar. <laughs> There's a picture of it. And uh, yes, it sounds incredible, but they really went full hog on the zero waste quest. She doesn't buy little bottles of dish soap or shampoo. She buys bulk stuff and puts it in her own bottles or she makes her own cleaning products. And it's really Sunset Magazine did a thing on the zero waste home and has images of her home in it uh, that are quite stunning. It's a beautiful place, but it's all about being sustainable right now here's the kicker why would a family want to do this the husband was a little reluctant about it he said you know this is a, this is a bit of work not as much as i thought it would be but still it's a, it's 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 a, a change in lifestyle and they sat down and penciled out what they had saved and it turns out their household budget expenses had been reduced by 40 percent by going this route and suddenly they were taking vacations that they previously couldn't afford and you know not everybody can be as diligent as the Johnson family but everybody would like to save 10 or 15 percent of their household budget you know just by doing some of what the Johnsons do and I think you know it turns out that I, I, it proves to me that waste is the one big social problem anyone can do something about and, and see a payoff for let's take a quick break for our sponsor do you think you'll have enough money to retire Maybe you will, but also maybe you won't. And I'm a gambling man. I love throwing the dice in Vegas. But one thing I don't want to gamble with is retirement. Hidden broker fees and unexpected taxes can make your advisor and Uncle Sam a lot richer while you have to work through your 70s. But in under two minutes, using Future Advisor's amazing tool, you will get a free report about your money and how to best plan for the future. Future Advisor's Nobel Prize winning strategy and intuitive financial software ensures you get the most out of your investments. And their software is so efficient, they'll show you where your current portfolio is lacking and how to fix it for free. First, go to futureadvisor.com smart people in order to get the free portfolio analysis. I went, I plugged in a bunch of different accounts that I have, not a lot of money in each, but you know, it's all spread out. And I got decent grades on some and failing grades in the other. But I've never seen or come across a tool this easy where within two minutes, type in a couple of things and you'll know where you stand and how to move forward. Check it out. Go to futureadvisor.com slash smart people and get this free portfolio analysis. Future Advisor, a report about your money and a plan for the future in under two minutes for free. Now back to the show. I, I like the way you put that because we oftentimes look at 
organizations or companies as different than us as individuals or families. You know, oh, I, I see why an organization or a company might do it. They create so much waste. They're bottom line driven. But for me, it's I'm kind of a small portion of the problem and I'm, I might not see a return and I'm kind of lazy as we all are. And so I just don't want to make the change. But really, as the argument has often been made, we're just scaled down versions of corporations. Well, in, in, when it comes to waste, we are. I mean, it always makes economic sense not to waste stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody's grandma probably you know told you that in one form or fashion. You know, she's probably talking about the peas you left on your plate, but mm -hmm. you know. But it, it's it's the same principle. Um, you know, my uh, my grandparents you know lived through the depression and. I, um, my granny didn't throw anything away. I mean, it's it's really kind of a, a return to the past or back to the future, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> in, in terms of not being so um, enamored of our disposable convenience products um, that we throw them away with without a thought. You know, my, my, my grandmama poured that. And now we're returning to those values where – we think, well, you know what, maybe we don't need those paper napkins. Uh, we don't need to buy water in little plastic bottles where, you know, the, the water inside ends up being priced more than the price of gasoline per ounce you know, because mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an, it, it, one of the more insanely wasteful products. Maybe we don't need that. You know, maybe I can bring my own cup to, to Starbucks. I mean, they'll sell you one for a buck and then fill it up for cheaper than getting the paper cup. So why not? Um, there's so many ways to avoid the, uh, the um, most wasteful things that are thrust at us all the time. And I think families like the Johnsons really show us it's not so hard to do it and that it pays off to try. The Johnsons, they have such an American, you know, last name. It just sounds like something we can all do. Getting back to yeah. our roots. <laughs> I love yeah, it. well, I should, I should, I should say then that Bea Johnson is actually, uh, uh, although she's a U.S. citizen now, she was born in France. So. Oh, wow. The French are way better at not wasting. I was going to say, way. yeah, those Europeans, they re they have a leg up when it comes to this on us. But it's not the American way, right? Buy more, throw more out. And for those out there that are thinking, you know what? I probably don't make a lot of trash. I'm not a big part of the problem. You have some really great illustrations, analogies for ex approximately how much trash we create. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, it took some research to, to get the accurate numbers on it because the official numbers are way off. They underestimate our trashiness. <laughs> we are world champion uh, trash makers uh, among developed nations, and it overestimates the proportion that we recycle. So, But the real numbers, and they're available through some extensive data mining that uh, Columbia University and um, a specialty publication called BioJournal has done. Uh, the average American makes about seven pounds of trash a day, a little bit over that. Um, if, you, if you look at the average lifetime of an American, that's 102 tons of trash across our lifetime. It's the biggest thing we will ever make. Uh, and uh, if you collected it, on, if we didn't have our wonderfully magical waste management systems in place and just collected your trash in the front yard, you'd have a pile weighing 1.3 tons after the end of a year for every man, woman, and child in your house. Wow. So that's picture that <laughs> picture that for a minute. Uh, that is a lot of waste, and a lot of it's plastic 
and plastic is light. So to get up to 1.3 tons, it's a big volume of trash as well. So it's, it's a little scary, actually. You look at – now, we send 69% of that to landfills in America. You know how much um, Germany and Austria send to landfills? Less than 1%. What? They recycle at way times, uh, many times our rate, and they make energy out of the rest of their trash. Instead of um, burying it in the ground, they use it as fuel for, for um, modern ones are quite clean, waste-to-energy plants. Denmark became energy independent. It used to be a net importer of oil. Now it's a net exporter for what it drills offshore and is completely energy independent. It started doing that in the 70s at the time of the oil crisis. They built windmills and trash burning energy plants. And that's how they power their nation. So waste can, I mean, think of the national security uh, aspect of being energy independent and oil independent. Why can't we do that? We have the technology, we have the money, but I don't understand. Well, it's, you said it at the beginning, this is not a subject that's easy for us to see or to talk about we're we're you know we love to get a cup of starbucks mm. i mean you know starbucks charges you for the for that one dollar reusable cup but they give you the paper cup for free so mm. i suppose they could flip it if they really wanted to be uh, good for the environment but but, they, but, but can we blame it, the government for not or or the waste management system for just not doing a better job managing our waste i think we all share in in the blame okay. uh, there's there's the NIMBY effect. You know, I spent a lot of time at what was, while I was working in the book, the largest operating landfill in the United States. It's the 12th tallest structure in, in Los Angeles, and uh, it's called Puente Hills Landfill. It is Garbage Mountain. It's the Disneyland of dumps. It's a fascinating place. It's 500-foot-high mountain of trash. It's visible for miles. It's awe-inspiring and horrible and absurd all at once, but the thing is, it exists there because the surrounding community rejected a waste-to-energy plant because they didn't want to look at a 200-foot-tall smokestack. And instead, they're looking at a 500-foot-tall mountain of oh garbage. So those are the kind of choices 20 years ago that we made and have been mirrored across across the country. And, and now we're grappling with the consequences. But the real answer, the best answer isn't recycling. It isn't even waste energy. Those are great strategies, but the, the best strategy of all is to actually reduce and eliminate the waste because that's the biggest bang for the buck. Recycling is expensive. Waste to energy, trash is a very inefficient fuel. It's better. It, those are the better than nothing solutions, and, and we're not even doing those very well, but being more innovative in how we package things, in how we use things in order to reduce waste, that's where we can realize the most benefit. But that's the hardest. At the end of the episode, I want to give some specific examples of what people can do, maybe small changes, and then how it will benefit them as well as the planet. But I, I wanted to keep going in this direction of this trash problem and what it is and the really unique things you uncovered in this book. And one was the section you did on the trash detectives. And it was really a poignant section because it goes to show that even our understanding of where trash goes is surprisingly limited. Yes. And this was this was very eye-opening for me as well because you don't really think about what they call the removal chain. You know, the focus of businesses and economic activity is always on the supply chain and getting the goods where they need to go. And... Um, uh, the removal chain, what happens after the goods get 
where they're going and they get used up and then what's left over, the waste, the trash, the garbage, what happens to that doesn't get the kind of planning and thought, but it's just as uh, as vital a process, the end of life of products, as, as the creation of it. Or it should be, but we don't treat it that way. So what happened? Uh, MIT had this great experiment, this trash tracking experiment, and they cannibalized some old cell phones, got the little uh, uh, chips out of them so they could use them as trackers, and they implanted it in trash, in different articles of trash in Seattle, and threw it away in different um, uh, receptacles around the city, different locations, to see what would happen. It was all kinds of stuff, old coffee cups, sneakers, uh, electronics, anything that would normally be thrown away. And they just sat back and waited to see what happened. And it was very cleverly done. The batteries would last long because there was a motion sensor chip in there. And so when it was motionless for a while, it would shut down. And then when the trash moved, it would come back on again. And so there are these maps of products and how the pair of sneakers that were thrown away ran the equivalent. I think it was like a dozen marathons <laughs> before it finally ended up being thrown away very close by to where it was originally thrown out. The, the, most, the most amazing thing was what happens to things that enter the recycling uh, um, supply chain. Uh, and they looked at printer cartridges, you know, for a computer inkjet printer after mm -hmm. they're done, they can be recycled, refilled and resold. There's an entire business model for that. There's just special places you have to throw them away. So they tossed one with a chip in it, glued to it into uh, 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 a, a dedicated recycling place for this kind of material and tracked it as it went from Washington state across the country to the East Coast, back again, and then back east again, before it finally landed in the proper place for it to be recycled. It had acquired such a carbon footprint at that point that it would have been so much better just to throw into wow. the landfill. It defeated the entire purpose of recycling it, which is to lower the footprint. Uh, and they found that kind of thing happened not all the time, but often enough to be a serious concern that the trash wasn't really going places intelligently. It was just kind of meandering sometimes and uh, to our to our great cost. It's one of those inefficiencies that I think it's not going to be fixed unless there is a, a profitable reason to do so or a government imposed, I would imagine. Uh, well, and I, I think the good news is that when these kinds of inefficiencies are found within a within a business, and, and Walmart's by far not the only example, um, they really are trying to do something about right. it. Um, I, I really, you know, the laggard on environmental policies for decades was always the, the cor corporate America. And now, in many ways, they're the, they're the leader mm -hmm. in this area of waste reduction, uh, you know, specifically that. But I mean, look at, look at food waste. That's been talked about quite a bit. 40% of our food ends up in a landfill. 40% of our food supply. Think about that. If you could shave five percentage points off that, it could feed two million people. So you want to talk about waste that we could really do something about. Yeah. How we deal with food is, is a really big one. Well, actually, uh, I wanted to touch on that because I'm really interested in the different types of trash. You outline it very nicely in the book. But say food, for example. I always wonder... If I throw something out that's food or perishable, does it just can it just go away? Is it really one of those? It just composts or you know biodegrades, and eh, it's not that harmful. 
Well, would that that were true. It's the organic waste that causes the most greenhouse gas emissions when it ends up in a landfill. Landfills are methane generators, and methane, which is the, you know, the the combustible component of of natural gas, uh, is about 30, I believe it's 23 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, which is the big greenhouse gas culprit. But you need much less of methane to have the same potentially uh, uh, damaging effect on our environment. Mm -hmm. So now you have these landfills all over America. There's about 1,400 active ones now, which is down from where it was in the 70s when there was over 12,000. But these mega landfills that we rely on now kick out all kinds of uh, of methane into the atmosphere uh, unless they are capped in some way or the methane is channeled into an energy plant. And they did that at Garbage Mountain here in L.A. um, years ago. In fact, they were one of the first to pioneer putting uh, tubes down into the landfill that would uh, suck up the methane. Garbage Mountain in L.A. makes so much methane that the power plant on top of it, they actually built a power plant on top of it, generates enough electricity for 50,000 homes just from the, the methane emissions that come from rotting food inside that garbage mountain. This week's episode is brought to you by Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work, share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. It's also built using responsive design, which means that everything you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go on your smartphone. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an intranet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Sign up now and try it out for free at igloosoftware.com slash smart people. That's igloosoftware.com slash smart people. I wanted to give Igloo a huge thank you for supporting Smart People Podcast. Don't forget, head over to igloosoftware.com slash smart people. And now back to the show. This is where I'm so confused. I feel like that is the solution. If you have a gas that is released from these garbage mountains, these these landfills, capturing it into the energies, as you said, methane's the combustible emission, it seems that's how we make it the win-win. I just cannot wrap my head well, around why it's most not. Most landfills don't do that. Um, they'll just burn it off or, or not do anything with it. Um, you only capture a portion of it, so some of the methane is still, even with the, the, that power plant, some of it's still escaping into the atmosphere. But the final thing is, right? think about making energy. You want to do that with the least expense possible per unit of, of you know, energy you're generating. Now, here we have an entire food system. We're spending enormous manpower and effort and energy to raise and water and plant and harvest crops or cattle or whatever food stuff we're talking about to prepare it. We're using energy for that, to ship it, to refrigerate it. It's incredibly expensive. And then we're throwing away 40% of that. Right. <laughs> and then we're burning it in a mountain. And 10 years later, it'll turn into methane. Well, every volt of electricity you get from that costs so much more than any other uh, amount of power that you can imagine that it's a crazy solution. Mm. It's better than nothing solution. But what would be better? Not wasting 40% of that very expensive food. Right. right? 
Yeah. So it's, it's seductive. It sounds like a solution, just like recycling sounds like a solution. But reusing stuff or using it up in the first place is a way better solution. And that puts the money in our pockets. Yeah. Thanks for that. Actually, I really appreciate that kind of explanation of the food cycle, which this is the funny thing. These are all things I'm sure listeners are going, yeah, I know this. But even though you know it, you don't understand it or think of it. You know, it's good to kind of remind ourselves of the true cost of things we use, eat, and throw away. And I think we, you know, we touched on food, we touched on diapers. I know you mentioned there are actually some, some much more difficult things we have to deal with. What did you find are the items or the materials that just truly clog up the entire system? <laughs> well, it's the biggest component of our, <clears throat> our waste system is packaging. And think not our stuff, but the stuff that wraps around our stuff, you know, the cardboard and plastic bottles and boxes and and, uh, packaging of our consumer society. The ultimate in disposable products, that's the single biggest component of our waste stream. And that's new. Uh, You know, 100 years ago, the biggest component of our waste stream was, and I'm talking about residential, was coal dust because people heated their homes with coal and it made a lot of waste. Um, in the 60s, packaging was a relatively negligible amount, and plastic almost wasn't, in the early 60s, wasn't even part of our waste stream. But now plastics and packaging is their single biggest waste problem, and it's causing the biggest problem. You know, one of the things I talked about in the book was how much plastic we lose track of and ends up in the ocean. We're causing uh, environmental havoc and damaging our um, fisheries and uh I was able to estimate it at about uh, 4 million tons of plastic going into the ocean every year globally, um, which is the equivalent of losing 40 super aircraft carriers at sea every year. The biggest ships uh, the Navy has, 40 of those in wow. terms of weight. Now, uh, my my friend Jenna Jambach, uh, University of uh, Georgia um, scientist, just published a, uh, a report um, looking at plastic pollution, and she's got the best data that's yet been put together on this. And it turns out 4 million tons a year is the absolute least, and it's more likely two to three times that much plastic going into the ocean every year. So entire naval fleets of plastic are being lost at sea every year. And uh, plastic doesn't decompose. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go away. It can't be eaten or absorbed by uh, nature. Um, and that's another area where we create a disposable product. I mean, who thought this was a good idea to create disposable packaging and products out of substances that can never decompose or be absorbed by nature and just turning them loose into nature. That's, that's the kind of lack of thought in our, behind our consumer society that is, is now costing us dearly. Yeah. And one more scary, one more scary plastic fact. Yeah, yeah. Ninety-three uh, percent uh, of us U.S. citizens have measurable amounts of hormone-disrupting plastic waste in our bodies. <laughs> oh, thanks so, for that. Let me advise you not to reheat your uh, leftovers in uh, styrofoam uh, containers uh, if you want to, you know, avoid that kind of uh, statistic. Wow. Well, yeah, and it's it, those the, the thing you were mentioning about it being in the ocean. I mean, we have floating islands of trash. What happens to those? Well, the floating islands are the least of our problem. What's really bad isn't the big pieces of debris in the ocean. That's bad enough. But 
many kinds of plastic, well, it doesn't decompose the wave and sunshine um, action on the plastic cause it to become brittle and it breaks into small pieces until it becomes about the size of pieces, uh, those pieces of plastic about the size of plankton, which is um, oh, wow. small organisms that um, the, the tiny fish at the bottom of our food chain eat. And now they're eating not just plankton, but a, a chowder of plankton and plastic awash in our oceans. And those, plas- those little fish are being eaten by bigger fish, and the bigger fish are being eaten by the fish we eat. <laughs> and so the plastic is entering the food chain, and, uh, and riding along with that plastic are little um, accumulations of toxins in the ocean that like to cling to the plastic. So we are... We've turned ourselves into lab rats to see what's going to happen by dumping all this plastic uh, in our oceans. And, and that's that's why the research being done on that now is so important. Uh, right. On that note, and we've covered a lot of things that seem difficult and depressing. What did you uncover about what we can do from the all the way from maybe the global view to the corporate view to the individual view? The scary thing about trash is it's not only the biggest thing we make, it's it's our leading export. <laughs> it's Other countries take our waste paper and plastic and scrap and, and put it to good use. They, we call that recycling. Really, they're turning it into products, giving us pennies for the waste and selling it back to us for dollars in the form of products. It's wow. kind of a crazy business model. Um, and we have right now here on the West Coast um, a port uh, crisis where the ships are all backed up and there's a labor dispute and there's other factors that are making the shipping slow down. And we, we're having mountains of trash waste scrap building up all over Los Angeles now because there's no place to send our recycling. Uh, and it's a graphic demonstration of how our solutions aren't working. You know, if, if the solution is just to ship our trash off to other countries to turn into products, that's, that's a really crappy solution. But it's also an opportunity for us to rethink what we're doing with our valuable materials uh, and to reconsider that. You know, I, I was asked to, I've been asked to speak at a number of colleges and campuses around, around the country about this topic. And I was in Georgia and this student, very earnest student gets up and says, you know, we're not California here. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and he, he said, you know, how do we talk about recycling here and not, and this is his, his term, how, not sound like uh, over conscientious hippies, because that's what people think about recycling in his community, apparently. And wow. Georgia is the lowest recycling rate in the country, about 5% of their trash is recycled versus a national average of about 25%. California is over 50%. Um, and and that that's what we started talking about is how you shouldn't look at that and say, oh, God, it's hopeless. Say, oh, God, what an opportunity. Because how easy would it be to turn that 5% into 20%? And how much money is just being thrown out the door instead of put to use? Because that material that they're throwing away has value. Uh, and And college campuses are a great place to start because they control their waste flow. They can choose to recycle instead of landfill and they have a a buying power as a community with thousands of students and and sometimes tens of thousands if it's a large university to make buying decisions that influence retailers to emphasize lower waste products, Mm. less paper, less packaging. I mean, there are lots of things um, that can be done and college students are the perfect 
population to undertake it because they care about these subjects in greater numbers. They don't need to be over-conscientious hippies. You know, I said, you know, if you don't believe me, go down to the neighborhood Walmart and ask what they do with their trash. They'll give you an earful and give you some ideas what to do. Oh, wow. And that resonates. Uh, you know, it's the reddest state uh, company in the in the country, and, and they have lessons to, to impart on how to be less wasteful and why it makes sense to do so. And, and I think... Turning the conversation about waste into a discussion of what the opportunities are, 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 are is the way forward, um, because everybody understands th- that um, throwing away things of value is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, bottom line, it's crazy. And when you can see the way forward offers a community or a campus or a company an opportunity to to be more prosperous that's an easy conversation to have all of a sudden. Yeah, I really think it's that triple bottom line almost. And using Walmart as an example, as you said, one of the reddest companies there is, but just showing that it pays to be conscious of this. And and your book, Garbology, definitely does that. It brings this to the forefront. And I appreciate the diligence in which you researched it. And then the it was easy to consume. And uh, that goes to your style. Uh, well, Ed, thank you so much. This has been eye-opening, exciting, dirty, as I mentioned. Um, <laughs> and the book is Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, where you do a lot of writing. You're a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. It doesn't end here. Where can people follow you, learn more, read more, and just consume the content, the great content that you've put out there? Well, uh Couple couple ways, of course. I, I you know I love it when uh, people get in touch with me. Uh, uh, I have a um, Garbology Facebook page where there's kind of an ongoing conversation about some of these issues, and and uh, people share uh, different uh, developments in the world of trash and waste, and it's kind of fun. Uh, so that's always a good choice. Uh, and of course, you can uh, read Garbology in digital version too if you want to avoid the paper products. Mm. And uh, um, I'm working on a new project that uh, is kind of extending the the garbology idea to take a look at the um, transportation embedded in our way of life in ways obvious and not so obvious. I'm I'm anxious to see that one. These are things that we need to know more about, but you're the one doing the hard work. So we'll have you back on the show because I want to learn about that. That sounds good. And also your website is edwardhumes.com for those with the full full first name. So, And we'll link to that on the show. Again, Ed, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Edward Humes. Don't forget, you can find his book, Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And if you're going to shop on Amazon, why not do it through the smartpeoplepodcast.com Amazon link? You can head over to our webpage, click on the Amazon banner and do your shopping like normal, or you could even head to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. That'll send you right over to Amazon and you just do your normal shopping and we get a nice little kickback from Amazon with no cost to you. Please make sure you're heading over to podcastawards.com and voting for Smart People Podcast in the education section. You can actually vote for us every single day, so why not? We've got a lot of great episodes coming up, so stay tuned. And if you want to reach out to Chris or I, you can shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Or message us on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.